Try this with your friends. How many Yahwehs are you proposing? Okay, one. Fine. Then you say the Father is Yahweh and Jesus is Yahweh. How many Yahwehs does that make? Or else this is a zebra, that is a zebra. How many zebras? President Obama is the only one who is currently the president of the USA. No one has the slightest difficulty with that proposition, which is exactly parallel to John 17, verse 3. You, Father, are the only one who is true God. No one else is. I scored a commendatory point buzzard when I suggested this on a blog with Professor Tuggy. Augustine, in his homilies on John, was defeated by the words of Jesus here in John 17, 3. And he rearranged the words and the sense of that verse to include Jesus as the only one who is true God. It takes an extended time, the 10,000-hour principle perhaps, to probe the masterly sleight of hand achieved by classical Trinitarianism. I think we now see the marvelous degree of cleverness and cunning involved in the amazing construct that God is three and one, three in one. Did not Paul warn of trickery and deceit calculated to dupe the unwary? Customarily, its exponents are driven back to the final defense. They play the mystery card, the joker card, perhaps. The Trinity cannot actually be explained, so say some of them. That's the problem. It cannot be explained. It attempts a mathematical proposition which for all eternity cannot work. It's a contradiction, but hides that awful fact, lest it have to be admitted that the Church has been mistaken all these centuries. At the same time, it has been appallingly cruel, using the rack, the sword, and the stake to enforce it sometimes. Reverend Mosley, brother-in-law to Cardinal Newman, said, I ask with all humbleness where the idea of the threeness is expressed in the New Testament with a doctrinal sense and force. Where is the triune God held up to be worshipped, loved, and obeyed? Where is he preached and proclaimed in that threefold character? We read, God is one, and I and the Father are one. But never do we read that the three are one, except in one interpolated or forged verse in 1 John 5, verse 7. To me, the whole matter is most painful and perplexing, and I should not even speak as I do now if I were not on the threshold of the grave, soon to appear before the throne of all truth. Certainly, we do not find in Scripture the expression God the Son or God the Holy Ghost. Whenever I pronounce the word God simply and first, I mean God the Father, and I cannot help meaning that if I mean anything at all. Rightly, Cardinal Newman who moved from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, said, 
The Trinity is a contradiction, and not merely a verbal contradiction, but an incompatibility in the human ideas conveyed. We can scarcely make a nearer approach to an exact enunciation of it than of saying that one thing is two things. That's from Sadler's Gloria Patri by A. H. Newman. Or, as the Seventh-day Adventists wrote, celebrating their move to Trinitarianism, they said, the keystone of our theology is one plus one plus one is one. They also wrote the word one in Hebrew, echad, is inherently a plural word. That's in the book called The Trinity by Widden and Moon and Reeve. Yahweh cannot be at the same time the triune God as a whole and also the name of each one of the persons separately. This would be sheer contradiction since one X cannot be three X's. But Trinitarians are caught in a trap here. They claim that Yahweh means the triune God but clearly Yahweh means the Father and not the triune God, as in Psalm 110, verse 1. Thus the contradiction trap is not avoided and cannot be avoided. As expert Trinitarian proponent Millard Erickson, in his book God in Three Persons, says, a good Trinitarian must say, he are three and they is one. This demonstrates the hopelessness of the Trinitarian case. It breaks the laws of language and logic. Did God really require us to fracture the laws of language and communication to describe him? It has been the concern of biblical Unitarians throughout church history that the claim of so-called orthodox churches to be monotheists may in fact put orthodoxy itself in jeopardy. There are serious issues here. They require that every believer accept the challenge to study and analyze his current understanding of who God is. The issue demands also that those instructed in biblical monotheism harness all the energy they can muster to help others understand the monotheism of Jesus. This takes effort and reading and practice. It is perilous to ignore the words of Jesus, John 3.36, 1 Timothy 6.3, Hebrews 5 verse 9, John 12 verse 48, and hundreds of similar texts. Salvation is offered only to those who obey Jesus, which is the meaning of believing in him. Jesus makes that point over and over again. He surely foresaw and warned against the awful tendency to rest in the mistaken idea that believing just that Jesus died and rose is sufficient for salvation. Paul himself has been misrepresented in Romans 10 to support a popular view. Paul indeed spoke of the death and resurrection of Jesus constantly, but in Romans 10:17 which is often kept out of sight, away from the public, 
Paul summarized his argument by telling us the true source of faith. He said this, faith comes by hearing. He uses that word to denote the gospel of the kingdom. Compare that with Galatians 3.2. And hearing comes from the word of Messiah. The word of Messiah takes us back, of course, to the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel as preached by Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Not just a gospel about Jesus, and Jesus unpacked that gospel of the kingdom in the parable of the sower. Hebrews 2 verse 3 stresses that we are to believe the saving gospel which had the beginning of its preaching from Jesus. We neglect this at our peril. Salvation comes to those who obey Jesus. Hebrews 5 verse 9 Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3 lists elements of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, as, and I quote, amongst matters of first importance, en protis in the Greek. But these are not the only matters to be believed. The kingdom of God and belief in that coming kingdom is still the first and foundational and central element of the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 to 15, Luke 4 verse 43, Acts 8 12, Acts 19 verse 8, Acts 20 verses 24 to 25, Acts 28 verses 23 to 31, and so on. Since the words of Jesus are to be the essential heart of the Christian faith, we must ask, how obedient are churches to Jesus' first and foremost commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Mark 12, verse 29, citing Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Jesus here agrees entirely with a Jewish scribe on the vital issue of defining the true God. There is no other God but He, is the enthusiastic response and agreement offered by the scribe. He, of course, is a singular personal pronoun denoting a numerically single person, not three. The quintessential heart of true faith in Jesus is compliance with his insistence that the Lord our God is one Lord, not two or three persons in one God. It is usual for readers of Mark 12:28 and following to overlook the first of the three imperatives. Yes, we are to love God and our neighbor, but there's a primary imperative which precedes the command to love God and neighbor. It's the imperative, hear or listen, and it demands an intelligent understanding of who the true God is. The New Testament follows the Septuagint form of the Shema, Hero Israel, by saying God is one Lord. He's a single Lord. He is the Lord, our God, of Hebrew faith. He's the God of Jews, Romans 3, verse 29, the God of the Gentiles, Romans 3, verse 29, and the God of Jesus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1,300 times in the New Testament, orthos, 
the God, the one God, designates the God of Israel and no other God. I note that Bishop Tom Wright points out that the New Testament God is the God with the definite article, and this has a polemical edge on it. In other words, the God is the only one God recognized by Scripture, the God of Jesus and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We should note that Jesus is generally the or my or our Lord, while the Father is Lord as Yahweh, translating the word Yahweh. No one ever says the Yahweh or my Yahweh. It was wrong for the Jehovah's Witnesses to corrupt the New Testament text by inserting the word Jehovah. The New Testament writers do not do this, though they could have if they'd wanted to. Some Septuagint manuscripts do have Yahweh inserted into the Greek, but none of the New Testament manuscripts insert Yahweh, but they could have. They're content to write Kyrios, meaning Lord. But in Psalm 110, verse 1, Kyrios Mu, my Lord, reflects the Hebrew word Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l, which is never a reference to deity in all of its 195 occurrences. New Testament writers knew that the only one person, the Father, is God, and that God cannot die. Thus, in Colossians 1, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, showing the obvious, that he is not God. Likewise, in Hebrews 1, God does not speak through God, which would make two gods. He spoke through a unique son. Has the church then been faithful to the primary command of Jesus? I want now to examine the classic Hastings Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels of 1917. My interest is in seeing how that learned dictionary manages to steer its way in the article on the Trinity to a justification of the Trinity. My strong impression is that the learned writer is not up to the impossible task of moving seamlessly from the clear biblical witness to Jesus' definition of God in Mark 12:29 to the later dogmatic declaration that God is one being, usia in the Greek, in three distinct hypostases. The writer's discussion is a fascinating attempt to convince us that the new and now official dogmatic definition of God as triune can successfully be harmonized with the clear words of Jesus in Mark 12, verse 29. But if one reads carefully, one sees that he fails. The foundations of biblical faith and monotheism have been drastically shifted. The later conciliar system Nicene, Chalcedonian, Athanasian, is clearly off biblical base. Our author begins with the revelation of God in the Gospels. This is from the article on the Trinity in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, volume 2, page 760. 
He says this, The witness of our Lord's consciousness, as revealed in the Gospels, he certainly regarded himself as the Messiah. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Ramsey, says, Our Lord did not claim deity for himself. Why then does the church go beyond what Jesus claimed for himself? Michael Green, in The Truth of God Incarnate, answering the book The Myth of God Incarnate, says, Jesus did not claim to be God just like that. So Jesus certainly regarded himself as the Messiah, and the names and titles by which he described himself and permitted others to describe him are messianic in their significance. He stands in a relationship of unique intimacy with the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. He calls God my Father. He enjoys a cloudless serenity in his relationship to God. He speaks as one who sees clearly into the heart of God. He lives a life which is wittingly and willingly all that God would have it to be. He claims distinctly certain divine attributes and privileges. He is king and judge of all. He is to be the object of most absolute trust and devotion. No sacrifice is too great to be made for his sake. To reject him or his messengers is to reject God and to incur the severest judgment. All things, Jesus said, have been delivered to me by my Father. Matthew 11, verse 27. Compare with that, of course, the Great Commission. When we turn to the fourth gospel, says our author, we find this teaching expressed with a fullness and clearness of statement which ought not to appear extraordinary. John gives us a revelation of the inner life of that wonderful personality. What is extraordinary is that the inner history, as we have it in John's Gospel, does not reveal any essential element which cannot be found expressed or implied in the external histories of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No one, I think, can take exception to this fine statement, but there's no evidence here of a Trinitarian Jesus, one who would be acceptable to today's so-called orthodoxy. The author then proceeds to treat the issue of Jesus' view of God in the Gospels. We must never forget that Christianity was built on the foundation of Jewish monotheism. A long providential discipline had secured to the Jewish people their splendid faith in the one and only God. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God is one Yahweh, and you are to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the cornerstone of the religion of Israel. These were perhaps the most familiar of all sacred words to the ears of the pious Jew. They were recited continually. Our Lord himself had them frequently in his mind. 
as we read in Matthew 22, verse 37, Mark 12, verse 29, and Luke 10, verse 27. That's the end of the quotation from the Bible Dictionary. But this is precisely what churchgoers today seem to have forgotten and ignored. They assemble under a creed which is not that of Jesus and Jewish monotheism. According to the Trinitarian Seventh-day Adventist, some 23 million of them, they say the keystone of our theology is that one plus one plus one equals one. This should be compared critically with the cornerstone of the theology of Jesus. So then, are Trinitarians sailing under false colors? Continuing the article on the Trinity in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, we read this, that Jesus thought of God always as the Supreme One is unquestionable. Indeed, the very idea of fatherhood, which with our Lord is the characteristic conception, becomes in his teaching absolutely monotheistic because absolutely universal. To the Jewish mind, the sovereignty of God was the natural and characteristic thought. In our Lord's teaching, the divine fatherhood overshadows and also transforms the divine sovereignty, but never threatens to dissolve the pure and splendid monotheism of the original doctrine. In the teaching of our Lord, there are three degrees of the divine fatherhood. God is the universal father. He is, in a very intimate and special way, the father of the disciples of Jesus. He is, in the highest and unique sense, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find then that the teaching of our Lord and of the Gospels concerning God is the union of a true and unwavering monotheism with a great doctrine of mediation, according to which God and man enter into a very close relationship in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If the article had then added in support of its major point the wonderful monotheistic words of Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 5, which read, there is one God and one mediator between that one God and man, the man, Messiah Jesus, then all would have been well, and an article on the Trinity would have been totally unnecessary. But the article now goes on to waffle its way into some sort of bridge to the Church's later denial of the excellent words said of monotheism so far. The essay continues by referring to the, quote, modern philosophical and theological terminology which is used to create a doctrine of the Trinity. No attempt is made to justify the non-biblical use of philosophical language. The author continues by saying of Jesus, his ego had a distinctness and concreteness surpassing any other human being who ever lived. Our Lord was very man, and his ego had all the self-possession and concreteness which give to every human soul its personal distinctiveness. While we find in his self-revelation 
that he constantly entered into a communion with God, which is quite without parallel in human experience, and that he knew the heart of God from within, we also find him always distinguishing himself as a person from the Father. And I add, thus proving that the united Pentecostal view that the Son is the Father is severely mistaken. There's no trace anywhere of the breaking down of the boundaries of the personal life. Jesus' utterances reveal no displacement of the center of personal life. The personal distinction may be seen clearly in the following passages. They're among our Lord's greatest utterances. He said, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And also the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Whoever will be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Not what I will, but what you will. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My Father works hitherto, and I work. I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These examples are selected out of a great number. The fourth gospel is especially rich in such passages. Jesus also said, You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected into one. This good statement indicts at once the amazing belief of oneness Pentecostals, that the Father and the Son are the same person. It also makes utterly untenable the belief held by Jehovah's Witnesses that the Son is himself really an angel, that's to say Michael, incarnated as a man. No one could possibly gather such an idea from John or the Synoptics. Daniel 10 verse 13 states that Michael is one of the chief angels. Jesus is certainly not one of a category of elevated persons. And Hebrews 1 tells us categorically that Jesus is and never was an angel. The author then notes that John is empathetic about the humanity of our Lord, yet he is our clearest teacher about divinity. Note here the ambiguous word divinity slipped in. This itself is a fog term allowing for various understandings. The author's purpose is to lead us imperceptibly to the notion that the Son is fully God, deity, and thus a member of a triune God. First, however, the author is frank enough to concede that the Son is subordinate to the Father. As proof, he cites Mark 13, verse 32, where he says, No one knows the day of the second coming except the Father. Even the Son does not know. Our author adds, 
Here is a clear assertion of the subordination of the Son. When it comes to the inferiority implied by Jesus in the saying, the Father is greater than I, the author tries to produce this as a proof of the so-called divinity of Jesus, because, as our author says, for a mere man to say this would be monstrous or absurd. But there's no absurdity if Jesus is not a mere man, if by that is meant an ordinary man. The Jesus of our New Testament is a sinless, virginly begotten man, uniquely human. He's certainly not an ordinary or mere man. The stage is now set for a very waffly demonstration that Jesus was God. The argument fails to address, however, or rather forgets what it earlier conceded, the patent fact that Jesus in Mark 12, 29 and following fully commits himself to the unitary monotheism of Israel. If Jesus is to be our teacher, dare we disregard or depart from his plain confirmation of his Unitarian heritage? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. You call me Rabbi and Lord, and you do well. John 13, 13. This can hardly mean, but you are free to disregard my primary commandment to believe that God is a single Lord. You are free to assemble under a Trinitarian umbrella about which I said not a word. It appears that Jesus, attempting today to join an evangelical or other church, would be barred from entrance since he could not possibly sign the Trinitarian faith statement. The Lord Jesus can well complain, Why do you call me Lord and refuse to do what I say, what I teach? Luke 6, verse 46. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The issue is critically important. Is our faith to be based on the recorded witness of Jesus, or are we at liberty to set aside his teaching and his theology? The answer ought to be obvious, and it should lead also to some profound soul-searching. If we believe in the creed of Jesus, are we at liberty to join in the worship of churchgoers who do not espouse that unitary monotheistic creed? Can we appear in church with confidence, knowing that the Trinitarian view of Jesus is held as the central creed? Knowing of Jesus' clear confession of God as the one God of Israel, how can we then commit ourselves to anything but Jesus' own confessed definition of the Father as, in Jesus' words, the only one who is true God? John 17, verse 3. Commentary presents the so-called orthodox version of Christianity as untroubled by what Jesus taught about God. The prestigious word biblical commentary makes this amazing statement. It questions why Mark would bother recording Jesus' affirmation of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, in Mark 12, verse 29. First, the author of the commentary on Mark, observes that Bultmann said, 
the special interests of the church are not in evidence in Mark 12, 28 and following. He then agrees with Bultmann. He says it's difficult to understand how and why Jesus' affirmation of the Shema, which is neither remarkable nor specifically Christian, would have been created by an early Christian prophet. That's from Craig Evans' commentary on Mark 8-16, to written in 2001. His point is that the recorded saying of Jesus, defining God, must surely be genuinely the words of Jesus. But he gives himself away with his astonishing remark that Jesus' affirmation of the Shema is neither remarkable nor specifically Christian. The point should not be missed. Apparently the teaching of Christ at the most essential point of defining the true God is not remarkable or important for us today. Christ then can be happily divorced from his teaching and the church can go confidently on its way disregarding the theology of Jesus. This points surely to a huge need for a reformation of the reformation to achieve a real return to Jesus allowing for the Saviour's words to be the controlling factor of all Christian teaching. Dr. James Dunn, in his recent book, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus?, gives us reason for hope that the Trinitarian system may reconsider and return to Jesus, may in fact thus be revived. Revival is not achieved by anything less than a revolutionary return to the gospel and words of Jesus. Dr. Dunn must be read carefully, and he not infrequently blunts clear statements with various qualifications and retractions. But he does say this. The New Testament writers are really quite careful at this point. Jesus is not the God of Israel. He is not the Father. He is not Yahweh. That's page 142 of James Dunn's book, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? The New Testament writers, and I quote again from James Dunn, recalled that this was Jesus of Nazareth, who affirmed the same monotheistic creed as they did, who forbade worship to any other than God, and who prayed to God as an expression of his own need and reliance upon God. It's on page 145. Then Don says this, in an important sense, Christian monotheism, if it is to be truly monotheism, has still to assert that only God, only the one God, is to be worshipped. Page 146. Dr. Dunn could have added that Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament, but that the word worship is often applied to prominent figures other than God. They are not worshipped as the one God, but they are highly honoured as representing the one God. Jesus, of course, is uniquely and supremely elevated to the position designated by Psalm 110.1. 
but he's still not deity. He is the my lord, Adoni, of that most frequently cited text. But how can the unrivaled position of the father as a single divine self possibly be preserved as long as the church clings to a creedal statement which Jesus could not and would not have recognized. Doesn't the Trinity multiply God? Does it not turn Jesus into an antichrist, rivaling and challenging his own creed? Jesus never claimed to be God and recoiled from that awful suggestion. We join Dr. Dunn in his plea for conformity with Jesus' definition of God, that we suggest that Dunn might have expressed himself even more forcefully. He does say, and I quote, there are some problems, even dangers, in Christian worship if it is defined too simply as worship of Jesus. If what has emerged in this inquiry is taken seriously, it soon becomes evident that Christian worship may deteriorate into what may be called Jesusolatry. That is not simply into worship of Jesus, but into a worship that falls short of the worship due to the one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I use the term Jesusolatry as in an important sense, parallel or even close to idolatry. As Israel's prophets pointed out on several occasions, the calamity of idolatry is that the idol is in effect taken to be the God to be worshipped. So the idol substitutes for the God, takes the place of God. The worship due to God is absorbed by the idol. The danger of Jesus' idolatry is similar, that Jesus has been substituted for God, has taken the place of the one creator God. Jesus is absorbing the worship due to God alone. That's page 147 of Dr. Dunn's book. Admittedly, Dunn remains confident that Trinitarian Christianity is somehow still monotheism. But the crucial question should not be obscured. What is the theology and teaching of Jesus as declared by his uncompromising adherence to the Shema of Israel, defining God as a single divine Lord. If we are to take Jesus seriously, and supposedly we must, what right have we to modify in any way the creed of Jesus, agreed to and affirmed also by a Jewish scribe? A powerful confirmation of the fact that Jesus has not approved any revision of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is found in the repeated use of Psalm 110 verse 1 across the pages of the New Testament. It is that crucial verse which has received scant attention from many commentators. Its testimony, when revealed, is an embarrassment to the notion that Jesus is God. Psalm 110 verse 1 defines the identity of Jesus precisely not as deity, 
but as a supremely exalted human being. That's exactly, of course, as Paul did in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Jesus, in Psalm 110.1, is the Adoni, my Lord, at the right hand of Yahweh. Yahweh and Adoni ought never for a second to be confused. But they have been when a capital L appears on the second Lord in many translations, signaling to the unwary reader that the underlying word is the title of deity Adonai. But the Hebrew translated exactly by Kiriyomu, to my Lord, in both the Septuagint and New Testament scripture, is positively not Adonai, creating an impossible God-to-God polytheistic conversation. However exalted Jesus is, he remains the man-messiah, the non-deity Lord, Adoni, of Psalm 110, verse 1. So careless with this distinction have been much commentary and translation that the second Lord has been reported quite falsely as being Adonai, Lord God, and not, as it actually is, Adoni, a non-deity Lord in all 195 occurrences in the Hebrew Bible. The capital L on that second Lord is highly misleading. Richard Longenecker, in his commentary on Galatians, in the celebrated Word Biblical Commentary, notes that the second part of Galatians 3.20 is a citation of the quintessential confession of all Jews, the great Deuteronomic utterance known as the Shema, that God is one. That's on page 142 of Longenecker's commentary. He then cites Otto Betz with these words. The process of divine redemption requires conformity to the oneness of God. Commentary on Galatians, pages 172 and 173. Romans 3.30 repeats this fundamental teaching about who God is. God is said to be is, one, masculine, and the meaning, of course, is one person, not one essence. Paul is writing not just as a Jew, but as a Christian. Ought not the creed of Paul to be ours too? Only then are we subject to apostolic scriptural teaching, which is also the teaching of Jesus. We suspect here a hidden antipathy to the Jewish creed of Jesus and Paul. This needs to be corrected. Inadvertently, so-called orthodoxy gives itself away. William Lane, in his Word Biblical Commentary on Hebrews, observes of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, that the Greek aphenos means from one person. The reference is to Abraham. But the very same use of one, meaning is in the Greek, regularly described the one God of the Bible. The emphasized New Testament renders Galatians 3 verse 20 correctly. God is only one person, 
As long ago as 1849, the Reverend Richard Treffrey, in a massive defense of the Trinity, in his inquiry into the eternal sonship of our Lord Jesus Christ, noted that is one in the masculine means one person. That's to say one individual. You'll find that on page 129. This is an elementary fact of the Greek language and is echoed in the article we cited from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, observing that in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, and the Greek there has the neuter, n. The writer explains that the masculine, is means one person. The simple language about God as one person, reflected in 1300 New Testament occurrences of God, meaning a single person, the Father, has had to give way to the fearfully complex concept of a one and three at the same time, a one and three God. Is this not a rather obvious assault on the Lord Messiah's unitary monotheism, which in Mark 12.29 he describes as the most important of all theological issues? Is not the Lord Messiah, who was born in Bethlehem, Luke 2.11, precisely distinguished from the Lord's, that's to say Yahweh's, Messiah, in Luke 2, verse 26. Is not this triune God concept also an affront to billions of Muslims and millions of Jews? The alarming departure of Trinitarian so-called orthodoxy from the plain words of Jesus requires urgent attention. Christianity, we may fairly say, is the only world religion which begins by discarding its own founder's creed. This should be considered a world disaster. What are we going to do to correct this situation? We might start by pointing out that it's dangerous to propose a view of God which is at odds with our Saviour Jesus' view and which appears on the admission of those who have written on the subject to be a nonsensical contradiction, a proposal which cannot be believed because there is no recognizable proposition to believe. From Dr. Hay giving his lectures in divinity at Cambridge, he said this, it might tend to moderation and in the end agreement if we were industrious on all occasions to represent our own doctrine the Trinity as wholly unintelligible. That's from Dr. Hay, Lectures in Divinity at Cambridge, volume 2, page 253. What is there, says Dr. John Owen, what is there in the whole book of God that nature at first sight more recoils at than the doctrine of the Trinity? How many still stumble and fall at it. That's a quotation from Dr. John Owen in his book Divine Origin of the Scriptures, page 132. Dr. Newman said this, It is a contradiction indeed, and not merely a verbal contradiction, but an incompatibility in the human ideas conveyed. We can scarcely make a nearer approach to an exact enunciation of it 
than that of saying that one thing is two things. That's from the book Sadler's Gloria Patri, page 39. Bishop Hurd said, Reason stands aghast, and faith herself is half confounded at the idea of the sacrifice of a person of the Godhead as maintained by the Trinitarians. That's from his Sermons at Lincoln Inn, volume 2, number 17. There's a Wesleyan hymn where we find the words, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Another quotation, every Christian who says that Jesus died says that Jesus is not God. Those are the words of John Biddle, British schoolmaster killed for his Unitarian faith. The word echad, the Hebrew for one, means one single, one place, Genesis 1 verse 9, one man, Genesis 42 13, one law, Exodus 12, verse 49, one side, Exodus 25, verse 12, one ewe lamb, Leviticus 14, 10, one of his brethren, Leviticus 25, 48, one rod, in Numbers 17, 3, one soul, Numbers 31, verse 28, one of those cities, Deuteronomy 4, verse 42, one way, Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, one ephah, 1 Samuel 1, verse 24, one person went out into the field, 1 Kings 4, 39, one shepherd, Ezekiel 37, verse 24, one basket, Jeremiah 24, verse 2, one thing, Psalm 27, verse 4, two are better than one, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, for one day or for two. Ezra 10, verse 13, Abraham was only one person. Ezekiel 33, verse 24, a unique day, that's to say one day, Zechariah 14, verse 7. There are 970 occurrences of the word one in the Old Testament. 1,300 references of O-Theos, the one God, referring to God as the Father, and 11,000 references to God, or Adonai, Elohim, Theos, not one of which can be shown to mean a triune God. I'm grateful for my cousin, Dr. J.A.T. Robinson's clear statement about Jesus as described by John. He said this, in the first place, it should be noted that John is as undeviating a witness as any in the New Testament to the fundamental tenet of Judaism, of unitary monotheism. Romans 3, verse 30, James 2, verse 19. There is one true and only God. John 5, verse 44, John 17, verse 3. Everything else is idols, 1 John 5, verse 21. In fact, nowhere is the Jewishness of John and Jesus, which has emerged in all recent study, more clear. The only possible exception is in 1 John 5, verse 20, where the words, This 
is the true God could grammatically relate not to the Father, but to the immediately preceding words, his Son, Jesus Christ, though the his in his Son must refer to the one who is true, that is, God the Father, as everywhere else, including, of course, Malachi 2, verse 10, which states, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? John Robinson also says, The ambiguities of phrasing in the Johannine epistles are notorious, but I find it very difficult to be persuaded by such as Schnakenburg, Bultmann, and Brown that it is Christ who is being designated as true God, contradicting, of course, John 17, verse 3. I'm convinced, says J.T. Robinson, with Westcott, Brook, and Dodd, that the remaining Johannine usage, particularly this is the true God, this is eternal life, that 1 John 5.20 and this is eternal life to know you who alone are true God, which I believe the former deliberately echoes, these require the reference in 1 John 5.20 to be to the Father. There's also the parallel in 2 John 7 where this is the deceiver and antichrist must refer to the secessionists and not to the immediately preceding words, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. J.T. Robinson then says that despite the clear evidence of the gospel that Jesus refuses the claim to be God or in any way to usurp the position of the Father, this is clearly for John not the whole picture. He goes on to point out that the Logos is God, but he has said above, that John's Jesus is a Unitarian. The Logos is therefore the wisdom of God and not a second person until, of course, Jesus is born. Jesus is thus what the Word, with lowercase w, not capital W-O-R-D, Jesus is what that Word became. God the Father is still the only one who is true God, John 17, 3, and this, of course, excludes the Son. Jesus and John were Unitarians. A note on prayer to Jesus. Carl Judson Davis, in a book called The Name and Way of the Lord, Old Testament Themes and New Testament Christology, written in 1996. He says that the jump-off point for Davis' study is the multiple New Testament references to calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's to say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul uses such a phrase as a simple and universally applicable description of fellow believers. Most serious students and scholars readily recognize the expression as deriving from the Old Testament phrasing where to call upon the name of the Lord means to engage in worship, invoking Yahweh specifically. One Old Testament passage explicitly cited in the New Testament is Joel 2, verse 32, cited in Hebrews 3, verse 5, promising that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, 
shall be saved. We find that in Acts 2 verse 21 and Romans 10 verse 13. As Davis observes, Old Testament uses Jeremiah 10 verse 25, Psalm 79 verse 6, and Psalm 116, 1 to 4, and verses 13 to 19, they connote religious activities, and particular such ones that occur during worship. As he also notes in the Greek translation, it appears that the middle voice of the verb epikaleo is used to distinguish this sort of cultic invocation from more ordinary summoning or calling to or for someone. And so he judges, calling upon the name of, unlike invocation in general, as occurs, as far as I can find, only with the divine as the object in pre-Christian Judaism. Yes, but once Jesus is born and exalted, activity formally addressed to God may be extended to Jesus. But this does not make Jesus God, but rather the exalted, immortalized man, Messiah. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Interestingly, he suggests, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus may have been part of the reason for Paul's persecution. Since, according to Acts chapter 9 verses 14 and 21, Paul came to arrest those who were calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He further notes, it may have been that this practice was so different from the common practice of Jews that Paul and his Jerusalem kinsmen felt justified to deprive Jewish Christians of all their rights and even of their lives because of it. Given the clear connotation of the expression, the burden of proof lies on those who interpret calling on the name of the Lord Jesus as something other than prayer. With that, we certainly agree. Final note on water baptism. There is an equally simple and clear order from Jesus and the apostles that we are to be baptized in water. So much so that the command to baptize that is given to human agents of God is always a command to baptize in water. To be baptized in spirit in no way dispenses with the command to be baptized in water. To get oneself baptized, that is, in water. In Acts 10 verse 47, Peter is astonished that even Gentiles, for the first time, have received baptism in spirit. And then, in view of this, he says that they should be ordered to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It was baptism as the necessary accompaniment to repentance, which was required as obligatory for all those becoming believers, since the Spirit had already come upon them. Who was able to forbid water, Peter said, for them to be baptized? The point is so critically important that the whole event is repeated step by step for emphasis in Acts 11 verse 17, which says, How was I able to forbid God? One needs to read the Greek for the full effect. The repetition of the word forbid and resist. It would be a tragic thing 
to resist God by resisting water for baptism.